2: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app,
3: Apple podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, I don't want to alarm our listeners, but the fact of the matter is there is an epidemic sweeping the nation of the United States of America. And there is no vaccine. There is no cure. Well, there might. uh, Well, there could be cures like matchmakers or Tinder, possibly, or eHarmony, more like. Carolyn, I'm talking about the singlehood thing.
0: Yeah, women better watch out because this plague of singledom is coming for you. It's coming for you and your cats and your, uh, Campbell soup cans. I don't know what else is in the stereotype. Yeah, women do eat lots of soups. Your floral dresses. I
4: don't know. Yes. Who knows? You would think, though, in the way that the media have reported on marriage trends, downward trends in the U.S. in the past few years, that it is some terrifying epidemic that we should be bracing ourselves for, especially if we're women, because a lot of the focus and the panic is on women who've never been married, mm-hmm. are totally OK with that and might have no interest in ever getting. Getting married? Yeah, I'm not sure what society considers worse
0: to be worse. Uh, someone who hasn't ever been married and is single, um, but who could potentially get married one day, or the person who completely opts out of the system altogether and says, "Nah, now I'm joining this whole single by choice thing. I'm
4: I'm I'm good on my own. Getting off the marriage grid. Yeah, exactly.
5: Hmm.
4: Well, we do have some stats to share with you to kick things off in this single by choice episode, because the fact of the matter is, regardless of choice, there is a record number of Americans who have never been married. And Caroline, I mean, we're actually part of this group. So high five. Uh, this is coming from the Pew Research Center from September 2014. Yeah, so as of 2012, one in five adults
0: who were 25 and older, that's about 42 million people, had never been married. And compare that to 1960, and that number was just one in 10, or just 9% of adults. Now, men are actually more likely to never have been married, and that is a gender gap that has widened over those decades since the the 60s. And so what's up with that? Well, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, people are marrying later. More people are cohabitating. So it's not that they're single per se, but they're single in the legal sense of being unmarried, but they still might be living together, having a few kids. But there's also an educational component. Pew pointed out that this marriage rate decline has been steepest for the least educated among us, especially men, and the smallest for college grads, especially women. So it sounds like Uh, all the college grads, male and female, are getting together.
4: Yeah, and this educational component is something often highlighted when we break down these marriage statistics among African Americans. Because at this point, black women are graduating college at twice the rate of black men. And this percentage of never marrieds is the largest among black men and women. But a lot of times when it comes to whether it's single by choice, it's not choice is not as huge of a factor because this peer research found that a larger proportion of the African-Americans polled agreed with the statement that it's important to get married to someone that you want to be with forever. So marriage is very much idealized mm-hmm. within those communities, but for educated black women seeking equally educated and upwardly mobile black men, it's simply harder to find those partners. Well, speaking of attitudes and
0: idealizing marriage, people are pretty evenly split over whether society is better off with people focusing on marriage and kids or not. And then you've got 32%. If you're looking at the people who have never been married, they're not divorced, they're not widowed, 32% of never married adults Say they're not sure whether they want to marry, 13% of them say they never want to. But let's get into an international perspective. This is a fall 2005 report in the journal Marriage and Child Well-Being. They found that despite record low marriage rates in the U.S. that everybody's panicking about, there's been a million think pieces, and we read every single one of them about this topic for this episode, Marriage is actually more prevalent here in the U.S. than in nearly any other developed
4: Western nation. And not only is it more prevalent, it's a more prevalent
3: ideal.
4: And they cited a 1999 to 2001 survey, so a little bit dated, but it found that 10 percent of Americans, and that number is probably higher now, said marriage was an outdated institution and If you zero in on the millennials answering that question, that percentage goes up much higher. And then compare that, though, with 36% of French people who were like, yeah, no need for marriage, it's outdated. I was about to attempt a French accent, (laughs) but then last minute decided not to. And then 26% of British people also agreed that marriage is outdated. So it seems like this idea of marriage as this very uh, sacred institution that we need to protect is something that very much flourishes in the United States. Not so surprising, considering all of... Of The legal rigmarole that has gone on surrounding gay marriage. Yeah, well, this whole the, whether you believe that marriage is
0: outdated or not, it does tend to match the level of re- religious affiliation in various countries. But, yeah, like you said, I mean, the the idea of marriage and the marriage ideal itself has been woven into the American fabric from the get go. Basically, it's always been seen as a building block of society from colonial times. And when you go back to that era, colonial times and also around the revolution, unmarried folks were penalized by higher taxes in order to, quote unquote, encourage people to get married and pop out a bunch of new citizens of course, this hasn't really changed today because singles still pay higher taxes than married people who are filing jointly.
4: Yeah, there are over 1000 tax breaks for married people compared to single people um, in 1888. Also, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Field wrote, quote, Marriage as creating the most important relation in life, as having more to do with the morals and civilization of a people than any other institution, has always been subject to the control of the legislature. And again, that is something that we are still dealing with today. Our The American government has always been very much invested in its straight, citizens, Pairing up and marrying off. Yeah, I mean, there you have it. It's
0: wrapped up with morals and is called the most important relation in life. And so it's really no surprise that there's a lot of singlehood stigma out there, which is referred to as singleism. And this is a term coined in 2005 by social psychologist Bella DePaolo, who refers to herself as single at heart. I.e. single by choice. And she says that single is who I really am. And DePaulo is definitely the name that comes up in any story you read about the single by choice movement or just about people who are sort of getting off the marriage track.
4: Yeah. She's led the research on tracking this so-called singleism as she's called, as she calls it. She's written books. She is also very much a public advocate for single people enjoying the same kinds of both legal and also professional benefits as married people do, just by virtue of being married. And DePaulo also says that because of this sort of
0: figurative marriage squeeze that we're experiencing right now, this sort of moral panic over more and more people hopping off the marriage track that we're actually seeing as a response to that, this thing that she refers to as matrimania. It's this unprecedented glorification of couples and of marriage because those marriage numbers
4: are dropping. And so as a response, people are like, oh, marriage is amazing. And she says that those who don't have it are pitied. And those who don't want it, though, which is what we're really digging into in this episode, are threatening because you are not only an outlier, but you're an outlier by choice. What does that say about you? What does that mean about society at large? If we're choosing not to marry, then, well, how will the family units Progress. How will we have children,
0: Caroline? Exactly. I have no idea how people have children. How does, I don't know how that works. Uh,
4: I think we'll have to do another podcast yeah. on that, really dig into that. Yeah.
0: Well, people are afraid of single women in particular, as we've emphasized several times already. Uh, this is coming from a 2014 paper by Kinneret Lahad and Haim Hazan called The Terror of the Single Old Maid on the Insolubility Of a cultural category. And they write that the old maid is an undisputable cultural trope that serves to scare women into catching a husband. And this figure, the single woman, is a perversion of social order. And they write that single women, particularly when you get into the issue of single women who are entering their mid to late 30s, are commonly and popularly represented as lonely. Miserable, ugly, stubborn, and overly selective. What are you doing being choosy over there? You don't have time
4: to be choosy. You're 35. Death's just right around the corner. You better settle down as soon as possible. And they cited a separate study back in the 1970s which found singles living alone were likelier to be characterized as less friendly, colder, less attractive, more private, less extroverted and lonelier than people living with roommates, not even married people. It was just like, just please live in a space with other people. Come (laughs) on, really making us nervous. And this is especially true for the aging, older, single woman. And by older, we're not talking about your 60s. We're talking about your 30s here
0: yeah there's this whole idea of the single woman aging faster than the married woman basically that there's something almost uh scary and unfortunate about the woman who chooses to be single because oh well if you're 34 and you're married that's great because you found your your safe relationship and you still have time to pop out seven kids great roll with it whereas the single woman who's 34 35 however old uh it's almost like her clock is running out faster than other people's and this is also there's also patterns studied within gay male culture, which I thought was interesting, because if we're looking at different subsets of the population, gay men judge their gay male peers to be middle-aged and older, earlier than society at large does. In other words, straight people uh, might judge uh, a gay single man to be, oh, well, he's he's young and healthy-looking, great for
4: him. good job, good job, guy. He's a bachelor.
2: He's a
0: bachelor, but within gay male culture they are judged to be getting older. The clock is
4: ticking, just like it is for single women. Yeah, uh, in that paper, they really highlighted the difference between a woman with a child who's 35 being still termed a young mother, but a woman not only single, but it's really not being a mother as well. It's like not having a husband and also not having a kid. Then it ages you even faster. So there are lots of, lots of layers to this thing. But what about those people who say, you know what? I don't care if you call me a spinster or an old maid. I enjoy my age. I enjoy being single. Who are these people? Uh, well, there are a growing number of them. As we mentioned, according to a 2006 report from Pew Research Center, 55% of the never married survey participants had zero interest in seeking a romantic partner. They're like, listen, I'm doing me. It's cool. Yeah. Well,
0: back to Lahad and Hazan. They write that these women in, in the statistic, well, and men. But, you know, seriously, people are so afraid of single women uh, are unsettling the basis of hegemonic heteronormativity, which assumes that the joy and meaning of life can only be found in getting married. So they're upsetting the balance. Not only do we think they're just a little weird and could potentially be cat ladies, you know, casting spells from their apartment. But they are upsetting the balance of society that has been ingrained in our culture since the beginning.
4: Well, you're nobody until you're somebody's, Caroline. Right? That's like, that's like scientific
0: fact. Can we write a musical about this? That sounds like the perfect, the perfect song Answer. to be included in our
4: single, single by choice musical. <laughs> yes. Yes. Answer. Yes. Uh, but people don't even believe especially single women's choices and motivations for being single. We have a really hard time believing the woman who's like, I'm single and loving it. Like, no, 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 no. no. You are tricking yourself. You're in denial. Mm -hmm. There's no way you could be happy.
0: Yeah. Boston Magazine in January 2012 interviewed Harvard Medical School professors Jacqueline Olds and Richard Swartz, who are married, by the way, Um, And the magazine was looking at the whole single by choice movement and pros and cons and all that stuff. And there's this big assumption that the people who opt for singlehood had a bad childhood. Olds, for instance, says that most of her patients who say they choose to be single have grown up in a family situation where, quote, love looked Awful. So we assume that you must have had something terrible happen to you. We also assume that you're selfish or so so socially stunted. She, Olds talks about how we're raising a generation of individualists who haven't been taught to compromise.
4: And there is, Caroline, a feature film encompassing all of these stereotypes called Adult Children of divorce, starring Adam Scott, also features uh, Amy Poehler and other hilarious people. But it's all of these stereotypes wrapped in one. Spoiler alert: It's about Adam Scott, who's like, I don't want to get married. My parents got divorced, and now I have a hard time committing. But the happy ending is that he gets married. <laughs> See, this is a musical. Yeah, I know. I'm already working on it.
0: They also point out the idea that our high standards about marriage lead to a sort of social paralysis. Basically, the cultural view that your spouse should be your soulmate and your best friend and the only person in the universe for you is kind of intimidating to people. And so... Olds And not that that's not true, not that that's not kind of intimidating and like, man, I have to find someone who's literally 100 percent perfect for me. But it's the whole point that olds and Schwartz are saying that this is why people are choosing to be single, not for any other reason, like just wanting to live your life that way.
4: Yeah, it's like we can't let this be a simple decision like we're right. on the outside trying to overly complicate what for a lot of people is just what naturally feels right yeah to them but when we look at more objective research on people who are single by choice and this has been going on now for a while It turns out that they aren't all sitting at home lonely with their cats, just saying to themselves, single and loving it. I swear I'm single and loving it. They're clutching a mug that says that. Staring in the mirror and stroking their their the reflection of their face yeah
0: that's right we've got a couple of people who have uh done some research into the basically the life choices of of people who are committed to being single there was a 2002 study in the journal of advertising research kind of looking at who the single particularly the single by choice consumer is, is this a person who's huddled in his or her apartment, not wanting to associate with people, or is this someone who's actually going to go out and buy your products? And they found, kind of unsurprisingly, that single adults, especially those that are young and single by choice, seek busy and active lives. They're constantly on the go. And they say that singles have a unique lifestyle. They're often well-educated and earning good salaries, and they only have themselves as financial burdens. They also enjoy more free time, which they fill with a variety of self-based activities and often have only themselves to satisfy.
4: And they did highlight some differences, though, between people who are single by choice and those who are single by circumstance. And they note, and keep in mind that this is in the Journal of Advertising Research. This is very marketing-focused. So they found that the single-by-choice people would engage in more active and hedonic behaviors like convenience and variety-seeking, low-price consciousness and more innovative kinds of purchases. So they're a little bit more adventurous. Whereas people... Who are single by circumstance use more compensating and coping behaviors like watching TV and being brand conscious. So they boil all, all single
0: people in general down to people who want to fill the gaping holes in their lives whether they're single by choice or single by circumstance. They want to fill those holes with your branded items so they can develop a relationship with your brand that they apparently can't Develop with another human.
4: Yeah, yeah, they're basically like, okay, to what degree are these people impulsive buyers, right. and how can we capitalize on that? But
0: it's interesting, you know, I, I tend to poo-poo marketing and advertising and things like that, but it it is interesting to see that research into these people is coming out of advertising research, it's like we're getting more information about, hey, they're not pathetic. Oh, my God. Shocking news. You know, breaking news. Single people aren't pitiful from advertisers. They're like, no, they they actually live pretty cool
4: lives and they want our branded kayak to go with it. And that's something, too, that NYU professor and author of the book Going Solo, Eric Kleinberg, has confirmed in more recent research that he's conducted on people who are single by choice. And he told the New York Times quote, what we've learned in the past 50 years is that people will live alone whenever and wherever they can afford to do it. So we enjoy, a lot of us humans, that kind of just sort of basic solitude to begin with, even in the sense of having a living space just to ourselves. Yeah, but Kleinenberg
0: says, you know, we're not so alone and self-absorbed that we can't actually care about other people and develop interest outside of ourselves. He interviewed more than 300 single people and found that living alone tends to encourage more social interaction. Basically, uh, the single people he talked to were more likely to spend time with friends and neighbors, go to restaurants and attend art classes and lectures. And of the people who were living alone after a breakup or divorce, for instance, many of them opted to live alone rather than with family or roommates because they had found there was nothing worse than living with the wrong person. And that is more general. That's beyond just the single by choice stuff. But I mean, it's I think it's important to emphasize that People just because you live alone or you are single or unmarried, it doesn't mean that you're living an unfulfilling life. And a lot of people still, though, will criticize and say, oh, well, they're trying to fill all those holes that they couldn't fill with children with, you know,
4: going to art museums. And it's like, well, I don't know. It doesn't sound too bad. (laughs) Well, and that research jives anecdotally with my research, thinking about my level of sociability in times being single. Oh yeah. And in times, you know, being in relationships and you're nesting and you're making dinner at home mm-hmm. and like you just have your little place with your little person and you're going to watch way too much Netflix because it's really nice. But when yeah. you're single, it, it does kind of force you in a way to go out and do things and see other people. And other studies, I'm sure we've cited this on the
0: podcast in a previous episode, but, um, it's, it's the study looking at social involvement of single people versus married people and researchers have found that single people are way more likely to volunteer. They're way more likely to be like a, a solid and involved member of the community versus married people. And that's not to say that married people are bad or they're uninvolved or uninterested. It's just that when you have kids and a wife or a husband or whoever, you know, you're going to dedicate, rightfully so, a lot of time to that nuclear family. When you're single, you have more energy and time to dedicate to the world around you. Well, and
4: and that oversight of the rich lives of single people is something that can be really frustrating if you're single in the workplace. And... People might assume that if you're single and or don't have kids, then when the holidays come, like Mm -hmm. you can bear the brunt of it. Right. Because we have these responsibilities. Or if you have a sick kid, then you have you can leave to go do things. But if you're single and you need a little time off, then you might get a little bit more of a scrutinizing eyebrow raise. And I think it's also worth noting, too, um, in regard to Kleinberg talking about the people living alone, post-breakup or divorce, that single by choice can also happen to not never married or ever married people. It's something that some people will get married and then get divorced and then be like, you know what? Single by choice from now on. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's so much more to talk about in
0: terms of choice but also in terms of how that intersects with feminism and just the fabulous stereotypes that women have to face as single people. But we will get into that right after a break.
1: So visit Snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. So in the first half
4: of the podcast, we laid some statistical groundwork that more and more people are choosing not to get married or just delaying marriage to a degree that makes a lot of older people really nervous. And there is a lot of discomfort, particularly when it comes not to single by circumstance, but to single by choice, especially when that choice is made by women and Kate Bollock launched a thousand responses, got a fantastic book deal and got so much attention in 2011 with a piece that she wrote for the Atlantic magazine. All of the single ladies about her, the point that she's reached in her life at that point in her what late 30s, mm-hmm. basically saying, you know what, I'm single and I might mingle, but I don't know. Yeah, at 28, she'd broken up with her great boyfriend because
0: something was missing and she wasn't ready to settle down. And she basically said that she was inspired indirectly or directly uh, by the post-Boomer ideology of seeking that missing something and the second wave feminism idea of not settling down or just finding a husband just because. She said it was part of this idea that she was immersed in of, hey, let's spend our 20s finding ourselves and surely the husband will come later. Well, he didn't. And she eventually, as she's writing this article, opts out of dating and relationships and getting married. And she said that she kind of reached this point where, listen, I don't want to see my single life as this provisional, you know, in between step before I finally have a fulfilling life at whatever age. That fulfilling life, of course, being equated to a husband. But she says that it's so hard to get other people to see that point
4: of view. Yeah, she writes, quote, the single woman is very rarely seen for who she is, whatever that might be by others or even by the single woman herself. So thoroughly do most of us internalize the stigmas that surround our status, because we are constantly surrounded by messages and images of the complete woman. The idea of, quote unquote, having it all is what? It's a married woman with children and a Mm -hmm. job. She's she's that awful uh, stock image photo of the woman with the octopus arms who's juggling, like, a baby and a husband and, like, uh, bathroom cleaning supplies and a briefcase. God, always the briefcase. Always the briefcase. Do you think they
0: carry the baby in the briefcase? I like to think that. Or that the
4: <laughs> briefcase is just full of diapers. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, Bollock is one of many writers who, over the past several years, have noted that this whole shebang is part of an entire generational swing. Basically, as women have climbed higher, men have fallen behind, and it no longer behooves us to quote unquote marry up. And Bollock does point out that this echoes Gloria Steinem's statement decades earlier
4: that we are becoming the men we wanted to marry. And we really saw the emergence of this so called elite single professional woman emerging in academic literature around 2004, and we found this highlighted in a paper published in the Journal of International Women's Studies, which notes how this elite single professional woman faces similar kinds of societal prejudices no matter what country she's in, whether she's in the U.S. or in Germany, Poland, or India, which were the countries highlighted. Yeah, the authors claim that this single professional woman is the first new
0: global sociological phenomenon of the 21st century, which is pretty impressive. It's 2004, and they're already saying this. No, yeah, no, screw hindsight. We're, we know this is happening right now. I also appreciated the Ally McBeal references in the introduction. Yeah, I know. And the Judging Amy references. <laughs> yeah. I, that's another show I watched with my mother. It's kind mother. of a deep cut. No. <laughs> I know. Um so yeah they they say that this woman the SPW they write that this SPW the single professional woman uh has successfully entered positions of economic political and social power with paid work in the formal sector so you know why does she need she doesn't need anybody she doesn't need to be a trophy wife she doesn't need to be uh, a kept woman she has developed her own power and then they point out that as the American brand of individualism and economic empowerment for women has gone global, the bar is rising for qualities that are acceptable in a
4: mate. And the authors note the same kind of two-part life pattern that Bollock experienced is becoming common. So in your 20s, you quote-unquote find yourself, and then by the time you reach your late 30s, you're kind of either at a point of total panic and regret for spending all that time in your 20s finding yourself instead of finding a husband, or you experience what they call the blossoming of the single female lifestyle potential, which also kind of sounds like a tagline for (laughs) Chico's. (laughs) Ladies, are you blossoming this spring? Try our new statement jewelry. It's just a big flower, and in the middle it's a single. And let your neck bloom. SBC.
0: Uh, well, not everybody's drinking the whole single-by-choice Kool-Aid. Susan Wall, she's the author of the Hooking Up Smart blog, and whose praises Kate Bollock sang in her article is basically like, yeah, right, okay, sure. Uh, so not only is she very skeptical of this whole single-by-choice movement, but she is asking, why do you have to be shaming married people? Not that I think Balik was trying. I don't think that's what she was trying to do at all. I just think she's saying, you know, I have a valid life choice as well. This is how my life is shaken out, and I'm cool with it. But while she's a little,
4: uh, I'd venture to say she's a little judgy. Yeah, she predicts shaming of married people escalating in the next 20 years as, quote, women engage in whatever cognitive dissonance or hamster wheeling is necessary to find an escape from singleism and, more importantly, a nagging sense of personal disappointment. So she's not buying it, but I do think that Walsh is setting up a kind of a false either or of like, we're going to pit singles versus the marrieds and they can duke it out and whoever wins gets nothing because we all die. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: right. Yeah, I mean, I I think she's basically saying that hey, women don't start out wanting to be single. They end up there, and it's a forced choice. She is saying that it's a forced choice, and she says that it remains to be seen whether 20-something women will get on board before they know whether they will even have the opportunity to marry. Uh, she says, I suspect that the up-and-coming generation of women views these celebrations of singleness as a cautionary tale. And... I don't know. I don't know. I do know that recent studies have shown that the millennial generation is on the whole rather conservative when it comes to stuff like this. Um, and so it is interesting to see generation by generation who's reacting to what social movements and, and things like that. Um, but ooh, that is not, that is not a very complimentary stance that you only essentially end up as single by choice if you've run out of options.
4: Well, and and to support this Walsh uh, points to an incident that Kate Bollock also wrote about in her article. Um, so Kate Bollock goes over to dinner at Walsh's house, who has like a bunch of young, I think they're like in their early college years, girls hanging out for Kate to talk about this whole single by choice thing. And at one point, uh, Kate Bollock asked the young women at dinner whether her single status at the age of 39 freaked them out. And all of the girls nodded, saying, yeah, I, that that doesn't sound like what I want. That doesn't sound like my fairy tale that pop culture tells me I should have.
0: Yeah. And all these young women were basically saying that one day they would plan on prioritizing family and marriage over a career. But I mean, Balak wasn't that different. She said, and, you know, she was writing about her 20s and college years and saying that, yeah, marriage was just something I, I took for granted. Like, it's going to happen. And I will eventually, like, meet and fall in love with a great man and marry him and he'll be my life and blah, blah, blah. But right now, I'm my life and I'm going to go find out more about my life by traveling and working and all that stuff. So it's not... It's not that she necessarily set out with the goal of being single by choice. And not everybody does. Sure, some people do fall into it and say, you know what, this is better for me now. This is the choice I'm making now. Um, But those young women definitely are in line with what Kate Bollock's experience was,
4: you know, on her own. But even this idea that, oh, well, you're prioritizing your career, over marriage and family, that's that even misses the point of what Kate Bollock and Bella DePaulo and all these other people are saying, like, I don't, it, it, I, from my reading of the Atlantic piece, Kate Bollock wasn't working herself out of relationships. She was right. dating a lot of yeah. people and getting into long term, serious relationships. She simply got to a point where she was like, I just don't, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And it didn't seem to have anything to do with, I don't have time to worry about it because I have all these board meetings, which is something different. And I just think it's really interesting that it's usually for single women, it usually is posed and reframed as like, oh, well, they must just be choosing their, you know, feministy career things instead of becoming a wife and mother, which Mm -hmm. it's like, no, can I just... Can I have my job and also have my relationship with myself and my friends? I mean, I noticed that
0: to go off on a tangent, I noticed that same thing in when you see IUD ads and magazines, especially for Skyla, which is the type of IUD I have. And it's specifically targeted to younger women who've never been married, never have had kids, and they're just not ready yet. And so there's one ad where it shows a cello coming down the slide and the woman catching it like it's her kid. And it's like, right now, my kid is my music career or whatever and it's the same kind of thing it's like or (laughs) or yes she has a fulfilling balanced life and just doesn't want to be a mom
4: yeah or it doesn't (laughs) have to be an either or
0: right couldn't it be a both and i know a young mother who plays the cello so yes, we can have it all. Maybe, like, wait—is the cello her baby, Caroline? I don't understand. Oh no, wait. So yeah, does she, she is, burp the cello. Yes, yeah, she does. <laughs> yes, and yes, she is a
4: mother of a baby and a cello. And the cello. They're twins. <laughs> well, this whole conversation about choice, either or, feminism, careers, etc., leads us to this. Really fascinating wrinkle in all of this pointed out again by Kinneret Lahad, the Israeli researcher that we cited earlier in another paper she published in May 2013 called The Single Woman's Choice as a Zero-Sum Game. And she really focuses in on how, quote, choice has become a cultural obligation deeply ingrained in the neoliberal post-feminist therapeutic and consumerist norms. And, she finds that rather problematic at times. Yeah, and basically this is the notion that
0: the minute an act is articulated as a choice, it's considered a feminist act. Um, and she asks, does this really set us free or is it just ammunition for people to dismiss those choices, especially if you're a woman? We still have not culturally gotten over the whole hysterical floating, floating uterus thing. We're, we're still there, I think, a little bit mentally. Um, and she's wondering, based on past research, does this quote unquote choice feminism promote a, a false sense of autonomy by placing autonomous choice and self-actualization as its high In other words, is personal choice now trumping bigger political actions? Are we pitting choice and singlehood against non-choice and marriage? And also, hello, are we forgetting women who,
4: based on a variety of life factors, don't even really get to choose? Yeah. And in investigating this, she reviewed responses to an online column on what sounds like sort of the Israeli version of Huffington Post, like the country's most popular blogging platform. And this column was written by a woman describing her choice to be single and being fine and happy with it. And also highlighting the advantages of being single by choice. And what she found in the variety of responses, and there were hundreds of responses to this column because it is a hot button topic. um, She found in plain English, that essentially single by choice and making choices focus can be a double-edged sword that both enables women to resist traditional familial forms, but then also potentially lead people to cast doubt and delegitimize this option of autonomy and individuality.
0: Yeah, so some of the social interpretations of choice that she found... One, denote that single women are endowed with a partial and incomplete subjectivity. So basically, what happens if you fall? What Will your cat eat you? Who will take care of you when you get old? Your cat, Kristen. Your cat. We're, we're, we've said that. It's your cat. Uh, basically, there's no way anyone would choose to be an aging spinster. You must be crazy or you're just covering up the fact that you couldn't find a man. Oh, and hey, that choice you made, it's dumb. You'll eventually figure it out and your ovaries will lead you in the direction of the right decision. And uh, Lahad writes that these restrictions are part of, quote, post-feminist portraits of ambitious, working and yet unhappy single women. This form of skepticism can be seen as a post-feminist back or a new traditionalism. And a lot of the comments that were saying, hey, you only have partial subjectivity, these women are depicted as being too choosy, but their choices are neither healthy nor authentic nor knowledgeable.
4: And then on the flip side of that, of that partial and incomplete subjectivity, these responses, the social interpretations of choice to indicate that this choice of singlehood signifies a radical option for claiming singlehood as a long-term way of life. So these are the people saying, you know what? Good for you. You can do it. Nuclear family doesn't have to be the the only option. You're so brave. You're so strong to do this on your own. Well done, woman.
0: Yeah, basically saying that singlehood is a legitimate identity. It is not a stepping stone. Singlehood is not always or necessarily a stepping stone to being married, having a family, And Lahad points out that this is a very interesting and almost unexpected response in a country like Israel, which is, you know, very conservative, very traditional, family oriented, very like pro, let's have babies. Uh, I mean, along the same, not, not so different from the U.S. in terms of those attitudes. After all, the U.S. is the one with the lowest, uh, rate of people
4: saying that marriage doesn't need to happen. Well, and it's also notable too that Her research really focuses on the implications of this being posed as a personal choice because in the U.S. And we're actually going to talk to Lahad in more in depth about this in our next podcast. So stay tuned for that. Because in the U.S., especially when it comes to the work of Bella DePaulo and also what Susan Susan Walsh was fearing in terms of this marriage backlash is more of a political agenda of saying, hey, single people want equality to married people. As well. So there is personal and political all tied up with this. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, speaking of the personal, how does
0: labeling yourself single by choice, putting on that name tag, how does that tend to fit in with personal narratives for yourself and about yourself? Uh, well, according to Lahad study, feminism, choice and singlehood are all wrapped up together and become almost the core of the woman's identity, whether they're viewing you as that strong, independent woman or a pathetic single person.
4: And according to a paper in the Sociological Review from 2007, singleness remains a, quote, deficit identity because it becomes the single woman's problem to account positively for her single state because it's usually like I, I'm single and or but like you can't just be single in the same way that you like if you're married you don't have to say I'm married and you know what I'm really happy I'm really happy promise you.
0: Yeah, you basically get to say, I'm married. Full stop. Yeah. And people are like, oh, good for you, you have such a fulfilling life. When really, who knows? Who knows? Who
4: knows? You could be in one of those, quote, greedy marriages that some researchers have highlighted in terms of with the, with the sociability factor of marriage consuming all of you. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, Obviously,
0: uh, it goes without saying that this conversation has focused mainly on the single woman. We mentioned gay male subculture earlier. So what about gay men? This is coming from a paper in 2009 in the Journal of Homosexuality that investigated what it means for gay men who are 35 and up to be voluntarily single. And they ended up finding a discrepancy between your own perception of yourself as single by choice In the actual acceptance of and satisfaction with single status. They found that uh, single by choice did not appear to be the most important part of these guys' identities. Instead, it's almost a personal narrative strategy that
4: they created
0: in order to preserve ego integrity.
4: But isn't it so fascinating that... There's been all this research, so much research, focused on single women. There's been a decent amount of research focused on single-by-choice gay men. Where are the straight men? And also, (laughs) there is no mention of lesbians anywhere because of the stereotype that, like, oh, well, they pair bond very quickly and are (laughs) totally happy and fine, so we don't even need to talk about them, but... Straight men, even though statistically there are more never married straight dudes than ever before, all of the panic, all of the think pieces, all of the blog posts are focused on straight women. And yeah. I think that it has a lot to do with that motherhood piece, because it's sort of the the double transgression of not only being single, but also choosing not to have kids as well, which is still a radical choice to a lot of people. And... Whereas men are just allowed to be bachelors if they want to be. Yeah, there is no there's no straight man panic, no over, straight man panic. over getting getting married. Well, in one thing, too, that Lahad notes in that zero sum game paper that we were just talking about, that there is a bit of privilege, too, that comes with this social single by choice conversation and even just the privilege of having the choice because mm-hmm. She mentions that yeah, women of color are often left out of these conversations as well. I mean, in Kate Bollock's piece, she's white. A lot of the people that she's talking to are all white. It's like you you have to get to a certain educational level, to a certain socioeconomic level where you are even presented the choice.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, especially when Bollock refers to a lot of the older women, like retirement age women who have opted to be single, Uh, and stay unmarried. They, they, there is like this air of like, oh wow, these are, these are kind of upper crust women who have a really kind of blissful life that they have chosen to lead as, as single people.
4: Yeah. So there, it's a, it's a fascinating snapshot to see where we are right now with it. And I'll be curious to see in say 10 years whether this stigma still remains, because it's pretty entrenched. And now I'm curious to hear from listeners what they think about it. Do you look at people who are single by choice skeptically? Are you single by choice? Do you think that this rise of the never marrieds and people who don't care to get married, whether they're cohabitating with someone or not, is a threat to our societal fabric.
0: And I am also interested in knowing if you are single by choice, how you came upon that choice, yeah. because that's a huge part of the discussion, too, is that naysayers are all saying that, no, you just fell into this. You just it's your second best. It's the second place choice because you couldn't get married. But then there are other people who say, no, no, this is I went purposefully in this
4: direction. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear in in motives. So we await your feedback eagerly. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And you can always tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
3: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI.
3: There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing
2: the world we live in,
0: well i have a letter here from joel he says joel from portland uh in response to our female nudes episode and joel i've got to tell you i don't know if you meant to be funny but i laughed out loud so hard at this that i really had no choice but to read it uh in our listener mail segment okay so joel says I always thought that sculptors covered up lady bits on sculptures because pubic hair was just too darn detailed to sculpt. I figured they were able to do hair on top of heads because they just needed long, flowing lines. But fine hair in such a small area would maybe come out looking like a vagina covered by a meringue cookie. Thanks for the show. <laughs> oh, man, that imagery. Uh, it's I just can't. Like, I can't, I can't get the imagery out of my head. It is amazing. I do now want a sculpture of a nude, a nude sculpture showing just a meringue cookie over the lady bits. But I do wonder, Joel, what about the dude sculptures that have pubic
4: hair? Yeah, I will say it doesn't really look so much like meringue, but just spaghetti. So, uh, so there's that. More imagery. Well, I have another letter here from Becca about our female nudes episode, and she has some juicy information for us about art critic John Ruskin, whom we mentioned, and it's uh, the letter's a little bit long, but listeners, it's totally worth it. So she writes, You mentioned as an anecdote the alleged incident where art critic John Ruskin was horrified by his wife's pubic hair and refused to consummate their marriage. While indeed we have no concrete proof of exactly what occurred on their wedding night, I thought I'd share some extra information on the matter. In the summer of 2012, I stage managed a play called Blood Red Roses by Don Nigro that explores many of the stories about the pre-Raphaelite era painters, their critics, and most importantly, the women in their lives. I'm by no means an art history expert, but during the rehearsal process, we heavily researched these stories, including the unraveling of John Ruskin's marriage to Effie Gray and his failed attempt at romance with another young woman named Rose Latouche. Ruskin took a great interest in both of these women when they were young girls and eventually pursued them romantically when they were old enough. Effie and John Ruskin had a very unhappy marriage that they never consummated. The evidence is vague and in many cases biased, but we have come to understand that Ruskin was repulsed by Effie's body, possibly because of her pubic hair or by her period. What a surprise. (laughs) Men afraid of menstruation. Anyway, many historians speculate that Ruskin, as an art critic, grew to appreciate and adore the youthful female figure, but was disgusted by a real adult woman's body after seeing one for the first time on his wedding night. The story ends well for Effie. Thankfully, he was eventually able to annul her marriage to Ruskin and married successful painter John Everett Millais, with whom she had nine children. Ruskin later pursued one of his students, a young girl named Rose Latouche, when she was of consenting age. However, her parents didn't didn't approve of the match and didn't allow the two to marry despite Ruskin pursuing her for years after the initial rejection. Reportedly, after Ruskin first proposed to Rose, it was Effie who wrote to the girl's parents to warn them that Ruskin wasn't a suitable man to be anyone's husband. Another interesting note about Ruskin's distaste of nude bodies... Although found to be at least partially untrue, is that Ruskin claimed to have destroyed several works of nude drawings and paintings by the artist J.M.W. Turner to protect his reputation after his death. Some of these works were recovered in 2005, so he didn't destroy everything, but at the very least, he certainly had a problem with nudity. So thanks for the insight, Becca. And as always, we look forward to your insights as well. stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about singles by choice, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.